Welcome to the Free Thoughts Podcast, where psychology, pop culture, and self meet. It is I, Penny and Assie, back at it again with another episode. I hope everyone's feeling good, looking good, and having a good-ass time. This week, we have a very special guest, Jenna Overbaugh. She is a therapist that specializes in OCD, anxiety, and postpartum, and she's also a clinical marketing director for Treat My OCD, and she is also a podcast host, too, for All of the Hard Things. I'm going to put all of the links in the description box. I am so excited for this episode because I do read and know a lot of things about mental health, but for some reason, I never really dived into OCD. I don't personally struggle with it, and I honestly didn't even know what it really truly looked like and all of the layers of it until this episode. Um, and I do want to put a disclaimer out there that this episode does not substitute for the care of a doctor or a mental health professional. Um, I want you guys to more so listen, learn, don't diagnose yourself or your friends, but get aware and be open to being of support for the people in your life who might have OCD. Um, and also, Getting care, if you feel like anything that you hear on this episode is familiar, it would be super beneficial for you to check that out. Um, And also want to say that a lot of disorders are definitely on the spectrum. So some things that you may hear may be like, hell no, that's weird, I don't do that. Um, Or hell yes, like that's exactly what happens to me. Um, And that's what a doctor and treatment is for, to figure out where you might land on the spectrum. And I feel like a lot of people, especially African-Americans and even more especially African-American men, could have this but are living and dealing with it as we do all of the struggles and hardships that we've had to go through. And I also think that it's very tough to label things because it may seem scary or too deep or just too much to deal with. And you may feel like, you know, life is good, like I can go on without figuring this thing out. But I do promise you that taking care of your mental health elevates your experience on this planet and throughout this thing called life. It does not take away whatsoever. Um, It is definitely a hard thing to do, but it multiplies your life. We only get one of these lives, so let's do the damn thing and experience it in the best way possible. So yeah, we're going to get into the episode. Uh, Make sure you guys share, like, all those things, and yeah, let me know how y'all like it. Welcome to the For Your Thoughts podcast, where psychology, pop culture, and self meet. I'm here with Jenna Obaba. Did I say it right? Overba. 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 And she specializes in OCD and anxiety, which is very interesting because I feel like that's the one disorder that I really don't know that much about OCD specifically as somebody who is really into mental health it's just something that I think is really taboo and it could be placed in the category of someone who's like too particular or too detailed or super organized but um after going through your page I was like okay I see these things in like myself and like different people so I'm really excited to get into it this will be more so me just like asking you questions the basics and learning about it as well so very excited um and how, so how are you like how was your day we kind of talked before this but let the people know <laughs> yeah it, it's good we talked about i'm recovering from a root canal which along the lines of what we're talking about today anxiety 
Yeah, you. It, it's never quite as bad as you think it is, right? So I think that will tie in nicely to what it is that we're going to chat about today. So I'm super excited to get into it. Me too. Okay, so I, we always start off with a pen pal letter. So my listeners ask me questions, um, and I definitely always pull the ones that are related to the topic. So I'm going to do that first, then we'll get into your story, and then we'll get into all the OCD and anxiety things. So um, it says, Dear Penny, Ever since the pandemic came to an end, I think I've been having a bit of social anxiety. How can I recognize it and what are some practical things I can do? I really enjoy being with my friends and going out. So this is a weird space for me. What should they do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first thing that I would want to say to this person is they're not the only one. Um, I know often with mental health issues, we think that we're the only one, but there are so many people, especially with the pandemic, we are not meant to operate in isolation. And we have all been forced to do that uh, for the better part of, you know, almost two years. So, you know, it's new now for us to have to go to these events. It's new now for us to have to go to birthday parties. I've, I went to my first birthday party the other day and it was awkward for me. Like, I, I think just bringing some validation to the fact that new things are in and of themselves a little bit anxiety provoking. And this is new. This is going to be new for all of us. So just being compassionate with yourself with that. But what I'm also hearing from this person is that the the anxiety is interfering with their values and what they would otherwise want to be doing. So this is not just the case of someone who just doesn't really feel like hanging out with people as much. They're okay. Maybe they're just more naturally introverted. This is someone who, if they had it their way, they would want to be doing all these things, but their anxiety or their nervousness is getting in the way of that somehow. So that's where treatment comes in. And that can take place with a therapist, but it can also be you know, pretty done pretty intuitively just by yourself with the self-help tools that are out there. Um, when it comes to OCD and anxiety, uh, and, and underneath that anxiety umbrella, it could be just generalized anxiety. It could be social anxiety, could be anything like that. You're going to want to actually do the opposite of what your anxiety wants you to do. And, you know, there is a really specific treatment for that. It's called exposure and response prevention, otherwise known as ERP. It's the gold standard treatment for OCD and anxiety related conditions. Uh, That just means that it's the best treatment out there. You'll get the best treatment outcomes if you do exposure and response prevention. And it sounds kind of scary, but really what it is, is facing your fears in a way that's slow and challenging, but still manageable. So if your friends are wanting to hang out, you have that initial surge of anxiety, but you're going to want to try to push through that. You're going to want to try to commit to what it is that you value and go and hang out with them, even though it makes you anxious. We want to do things even though it makes us anxious because what happens is if that person doesn't hang out with their friends, you know, I, I get that phone call from my friends. They want me to hang out with them and I'm just too scared. So I'm going to hang out by myself tonight. That might feel better in the moment. Like, oh, okay, I missed that bullet. I dodged that bullet. But what that tells your brain for next time is hanging out with your friends is dangerous. Hanging out with your friends must be really scary. Otherwise you wouldn't have avoided it. So my job as your brain is to keep you safe. I'm going to register that for next time. So I'm going to 
register that information, hanging out with friends is scary. And so might feel good now to avoid hanging out with your friends and get that relief of anxiety that way, but it's going to set you up to be more anxious in the future because you've just given your brain one more reason to be fearful of it. So it's really about, right. And it won't, it won't feel like you're safe now, but you have to really challenge yourself now for the future. And that's what treatment is all about. And when you say exposure, you're saying kind of doing it repetitively, like no, you can. no matter the you can. outcome. You can. So an exposure in the most general basic sense is this, uh, you're facing your fear. So it could be just, yeah, I'm just going to do this exposure. I'm going to go and hang out with my friends when I don't want to, but I really want to, but my anxiety is telling me not to. Yeah, you could do that once. That could just be kind of like a one-time exposure. But as with most things in life, you know, the more we do it, the better we feel. So, so yes, it's going to absolutely, you know, you're going to want to do that repetition. You're going to want to do it multiple times, hang out with your friends multiple times, um, text, even if it's not hanging out with them, engaging them in conversation through text message. Um, right. Like just getting that connection. Yeah, to feel absolutely. More and it's going to feel anxiety provoking, but showing your brain that you can do it is really important. Mm -hmm. How does um, then alcohol play a role in that? Because when people, you know, have social anxiety and go out, you and especially like this past summer, I feel like everyone was just out in New York, like going buck wild. We had a blast, but it was just like, it, you could tell everyone was kind of trying to suppress like that weird feeling and just ODing a little bit. So how does that play a role then? There's so many different ways that it plays a role. So it can be a safety behavior, right? So I'm really anxious before this social event or before anything. It could be before a, a, an important task for work, just anything that's associated with anxiety or a lot of pressure. Um, and it can be used as a safety behavior. Oh, I feel like I need to have a drink just to manage these nerves. And so again, it might temporarily make you feel better, but usually what happens is when that's over, consciously or not, your brain has now attributed the fact that you drinking alcohol is why you got through that situation. It's not because you're naturally good at social interactions. It's not because people love you. It's not because you have good friends or good people around you, or you're generally a good time naturally. It's thank goodness I drank alcohol because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to handle that. And so your brain picks up on that. And so in the future, you're going to need potentially more alcohol in more situations to temper down those nerves. And you can feel so much more anxious even after the fact, right? Like the alcohol I've seen with so many people with OCD, social anxiety, whatever it might be, their intention is to reduce their nervousness going into a situation, but maybe they, because of the uh, way that alcohol kind of inhibits our impulses and makes us all act a little bit loopy sometimes, maybe we feel even more anxious after the fact because we've done or said something that we are embarrassed by or, or feel guilty about, or um, a lot of times, especially with OCD and anxiety, when you black out and you don't remember something, it's like, oh my gosh, what could I have done when I blacked out? Did I hurt someone? Did I say something terrible? And that uncertainty, that anxiety can be really, really awful for people. So feels good in the moment, but it's all, you know, it's all about the, there's pros and cons to everything. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's more so, so like the ultimate lesson is more so just exposing yourself in the most healthy way possible and getting used to whatever it is that you're fearful of. For sure. And I think the big takeaway in that way is your brain is constantly picking up messages. 
you know, your brain is constantly picking up how is Penny acting or not acting in a way that has any indication of threat or non-threat. So even though you may be just like sipping on your drink or going into a social situation, your brain is constantly picking up these, you know, random messages about safety and what's necessary for next time in order to maintain your safety. So if before social situations, you are drinking to maintain your nerves, your brain is going to pick up on that information and register that as I need alcohol in order to get through social situations. So your brain is always taking in information, whether we are conscious of it or not. Mm -hmm. And then another thing that I think it was Jay Shetty or someone said, it's like we are, we're way more, I guess people aren't thinking about us as much as we think that they are, in a sense. Oh, like everyone's worried about their fucking self, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah, and it's crazy that you think that. that people are focused on you when they're really not. And it's just interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think we're all, we're all focused on ourselves. We all walk around thinking that everyone else is thinking about us, but we're all just thinking what everyone else is thinking about us. We're not thinking about that. Right. So it's, it's uh, a really well-documented kind of phenomenon, especially in high school. Um, it's kind of like that, uh, that teenage girl who has a pimple overnight and she's like, I can't go to school. Everyone's going to be watching me. Everyone's going to know that I had a pimple. And it's like, she really believes that like she doesn't have the frontal lobe or brain development capacity to understand logically like oh no they're not gonna know they're not you know no one's paying attention it's me paying attention it's not everybody else but some of us get stuck in that some of us get stuck in that mentality that you know if i make a teeny tiny mistake or whatever like everyone's watching me um and that's just not the way that it is so um, that definitely answered the question. Uh, so we can just get into your journey. What brought you to this work? And like, who are you as a kid? And let's just like walk through that. Sure. So I've always been an anxious kid. Um, my earliest memories were like going to a new school and having to mid semester or whatever mid year have to say hi to people and meet new friends. Um, you know, whenever the teacher would say who wants to go first, I would always want to like shrink and recoil or whatever. Uh, but I knew from a really early age, like even when we were playing heads up seven up like that young, mm -hmm. I knew <laughs> yeah. from, like a really early <laughs> those days you're like, like nervous. I know. Like, <laughs> um, totally like aging myself right now, but um, no, I was I was playing that too for sure. Peeking under our elbows to see like what their kind of shoes look like. Um, I totally did not do that, but anyway, um, yeah. So I I knew from an early age like I have two choices. I can either continue to sit here and feel anxious and miserable and like just feel that vulnerable shrinking feeling that's associated with anxiety for me at least. Or I can bite the bullet, do the painful thing now and just rip the bandaid off and go say hi to this person or raise my hand and go first. Um, and I knew really early on that the, the latter was preferable, that, you know, either way I was going to be anxious, either way it was going to be hard, but I would have preferred to bite the bullet and take the more active route than just sit there and recoil and feel like I'm just rocking in a corner back and forth, right? So it, it always came very naturally to me to do the hard things, to do the anxiety provoking things with the intention of knowing very clearly that it would make it better, um, that it would get easier for me. And, and if I didn't want to do something, that was a sign that I needed to do it and get better at it. 
And so when I, when I went to college, it was my first, you know, psychology course, I think just introduction to psychology, we started learning about all the different diagnoses and treatments. Um, and I think just really briefly, someone had mentioned exposure and response prevention, which again is a big, well-known um, treatment in the field, especially if you're familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and it just really clicked for me when I read about and learned about exposure and response prevention this whole idea of being able to treat anxiety by doing the difficult and anxiety provoking things. I was like, that's it. Like, that's me. I'm there. That's exactly what I want to do. I always wanted to be a therapist, but I didn't want to be the kind of therapist who like just sits there and listens to you and offers validation and not judgment. And, you know, I, that just was never me. I'm, I'm more active. Like I like to, you know, solve problems and get in there and do the things. Um, so yeah, from that moment on, I just dedicated everything that I could and any internship, any assignment that I could to um, doing exposure and response prevention. And that just naturally led me to OCD and anxiety because it's the treatment for OCD and anxiety. Um, so yeah, I went to grad school. I focused on uh, OCD there, did a lot of cool research there. I ended up spending the last eight years at a residential OCD and anxiety recovery unit, which is, it's basically where the most debilitating cases of OCD and anxiety go for 45 to 60 days. They pretty much pack their bags from all over the world. They come and they live in this big facility and they work with us in a really intensive fashion to do exposure and response prevention. So that was really intense. It was a great experience. And now I work at NoCD. So it's an online teletherapy platform uh, designed to help people who have OCD and related conditions. I started my own podcast and uh, I forget about this part of the story. I feel like I have two parts of my brain here, but I... I never thought that I would experience OCD. I knew that I was always someone who had anxiety, sure, but it was manageable. But um, I had my, I have a four-year-old. I, ha I had a son back in 2018 and it's really common for women, especially new moms to go through OCD and, and to develop OCD. Um, I was very ignorant, admittedly. I was like, that's never gonna happen to me. I know exactly how to handle it. I would never do those things. Um, I'm kind of in the clear and I really struggled in my postpartum phase. So I really struggled with intrusive thoughts, lots of anxiety, um, lots of checking my baby at night to make sure he was safe. Um, and it just got really, really bad. So ended up doing my own treatment, seeing my own therapist for it, which was kind of wild. Um, but yeah, that was three years ago. And I feel like having gone through that lived experience now, I understand OCD so much more. Um, and I feel like I just like Jenna 2.0, like I have so much more <laughs> compassion and so much more to, to do and so much more to offer because I can finally say like, I get it, I was there. Cause you went, actually went through it, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like it's interesting. I love when therapists like show their human side and talk about that because it, for me, it makes me trust them more. But I feel like for some people, they're like, how can somebody who has issues tell me about mine in a sense? Like, what do you say to that ignorant um, like statement? Yeah, well, I, I hear both of them. Um, and luckily, I do hear the former more, which I think is great. People are, are sometimes now wanting that, like, I don't want a therapist unless they have lived experience with it, because I know they're not going to understand it. So, you know, everyone has their preference. But I, I think when it comes to getting therapy, like, 
you need to, you need to take advantage of whatever's being offered for you. You need to at least give it a try, right? Like, even if you have this assumption, like there's no way I could ever trust someone who has OCD or who has had OCD. How can I take advice from that type type of person? Give it a try, you know, have an open mind about it. It might absolutely wow you. I was, I can relate. I, as an OCD therapist, I had a really hard time like breaking down my own walls and having an open mind. Like, how could I ever go and see an OCD therapist? Like, what if I don't agree with what they say or whatever? I got to the point where I had no choice. Like I had to see someone who was an OCD therapist or I was going to lose out. I was going to lose myself or lose my family. And so it ended up being a really great situation. It ended up being amazing. And so I would say to that person, I understand where you're coming from. Have not having an open mind only holds you back. Um, if you're at the point like where I was, where you don't have too many options and you don't have too many choices, just try to have an open mind about it because I am such a better therapist. I am better able to access my members and my clients now in a way that I never would have been able to access them before. I almost wish that I could like go back and see all those people again <laughs> um, because I feel, yeah, it's just a totally different perspective. I'm more patient. I'm more compassionate. I'm more understanding. My analogies are way better. Um, so yeah, you know, your therapist is probably going to be able to offer you a little bit more than you think. Um, yeah, so I'm not a therapist, but of course, like I'm an advocate and stuff like that. But I feel like going through my own mental health stuff, definitely like whenever I go through something, it's OK. This is just another layer, another depth that I'll have to continue to help people. So I can definitely relate to all of that. Um, so let's get into the nitty gritty. So what is OCD? I, like we all think about it as it, it was this one star thing on MTV or I don't know where it was. OCD was, I guess seen as something just like checking the locks a million times and just like these extreme I guess rituals and routines um so and digging deeper into it it is that as well but there's so many other layers and subtypes to it so could you explain um in layman's terms for someone who does not know anything about it what it is and what those different subtypes are and how they look sure yeah so I think you you did great at kind of the intro you're so right these are the common misrepresentation. They're not misrepresentations. They do exist. Just like you said, they, they are out there and, and they are real for people, but it's really just a drop in the bucket as far as how else OCD can manifest. And so I think those examples are easy for people to resonate with. I think those examples like checking the light switch or washing their hands, I think it's tactile and practical and, and they can kind of like bite their teeth into it and re re resonate with it. It's also easier to talk about that stuff than the other parts of OCD, right? So we'll get into that for sure. But really simply obsessive compulsive disorder, we see it as a two-part problem. So it's these obsessions and obsessions are a fancy way of saying they're these intrusive thoughts, ideas, images, impulses, or feelings. So what that means is you're getting these experiences that kind of come in repetitively into your head, like a flashing image of a dog getting hurt or someone you love getting hurt. Or for some reason, you just have this urge in church to like, blare out an obscenity, but you don't want to, right? You don't want to hurt this dog and you don't want to blurt out this obscenity, but you're scared. You just, you feel like, what if it's a lot of what ifs. Um, 
And so they're very disturbing to people. They're usually, you know, something that causes them to feel a lot of anxiety, like, whoa, what does that mean about me? I don't want to have those thoughts. What could that possibly mean about me that I am having those thoughts? Um, They're usually what we call ego dystonic, meaning they're inconsistent with the person's values. So, oh my gosh, like what if I blurted out that obscenity in church, like that would be awful. I don't want to do that. That's not who I am. So why am I thinking that? So is that who I am? Um, so really we, we call it the doubt disorder. So it's really just a lot of doubts and what ifs and anxieties and worries gone haywire. Um, and yeah, they're really disturbing to people, really disruptive and, and can kind of come in out of nowhere. But then the other issue is the compulsions. So the compulsions is kind of their response, their their need or their attempts at trying to get rid of this anxiety somehow. So uh, you can have a physical ritual or compulsion. Uh, that's going to be things like checking the stove, checking the locks, uh, washing your hands. But you can also do things mentally. So we would say things like re- like mentally reviewing an event. So let's say that you um, drank alcohol and uh, you wake up the next morning, you blacked out and you feel this doubt. Like, what did I do? Could I have hurt someone? Could I have offended someone? Those are all those, you know, maybe potentially examples of obsessions, these what ifs, these intrusive thoughts that scare you. Um, you might also then feel the need to give into a compulsion. Maybe you are mentally reviewing in your head, trying to remember all of the things that you did. Um, maybe you seek reassurance from someone to make sure that you didn't do anything bad. Um, those are all examples of compulsions. So it's really any way that you try to escape or negate or get rid of the anxiety that's caused by the obsessions. And the difficulty is, is with the compulsions is they feel good. They give you some relief temporarily like, oh, okay. You know, Penny said that I didn't do anything wild last night and that like no one got hurt. So I'm okay. But the unfortunate thing is, is that logic doesn't work with OCD because there's always one more thing to be anxious about. So if you tell me I didn't do anything wild when I was drunk the other night, I'm going to, that's going to feel good for a little bit, but then I'm going to have that doubt creep back in that says, well, what if, what if it was with someone else and it wasn't with Penny or what if Penny's lying to me um, and she just doesn't want to hurt my feelings or, or so on and so forth. Right. So what that does is it, just reinforces the fear for later. And it creates this cycle of, you know, I get this obsession and I have to get rid of it. Getting rid of it tells my brain that it's in, that it's dangerous in the first place. Um, and so, yeah, it can be really debilitating. There are lots of, um, things that you had mentioned for sure that people struggle with, like the hand-washing, checking of the locks, but there are also other things that people don't talk about, but that they certainly struggle with. So things like harm obsessions. Um, I, I admit to this all the time just to help people like resonate and feel comfortable with the topic. Um, this was way before I had OCD. Um, but I remember it was Thanksgiving and my son, not my son, my uh, dog, who's kind of my son at the time. Um, my dog, he, this big, beautiful black lab, my soulmate. Um, and he loved the dishwasher. He loves the dishwasher because there's always like knives or some peanut butter left on a plate or something. Um, I remember I was alone with my dog and he was sniffing like right next to the dishwasher, right next to this big knife. And I had this thought, like, what if I just rammed this right in your face? And that is the perfect example of an intrusive thought. 
It's a thought that came in out of nowhere. I don't know where the heck it came from. It was ego dystonic. That's not consistent with my values. I do not want to do that. Um, and it could have been a little bit disturbing, but knowing what I know about OCD, I was able to interpret that thought as, whoa, that's weird. I don't know where that came from. And I continued to put the dishes away and I continued to, I pat my dog on the head and I didn't think twice about it. Someone with OCD who doesn't have the context that I had at the time might stop everything that they're doing and be like, oh my gosh, why did I just have that thought? That's really effed up that I just had that thought. I don't like that I just had that thought. They might put the knife down, put the dishwasher away, put the dog away, call their husband. I just had this thought. It was really weird. You know, I don't know what this means. They might jump on Google to try to, you know, seek reassurance or answer questions about it. Maybe they avoid doing the dishes ever again. Maybe they don't feel comfortable being alone with their dog anymore. Um, so it can get really debilitating and spiral out of control pretty wildly. Um, so there's also sexual orientation. OCD is, a, is, a, is one that we're hearing a lot about. People who just feel they need to be 100% sure about their sexual identity or their sexual orientation. Um, I can't be 99% sure. I need to be 100% sure. Um, we hear a lot about relationship OCD. Oh my gosh, I, I thought this, this trainer at the gym was attractive. Does that mean that I'm not in love with my partner? I, I can't cope with that. I can't cope with not knowing. And that's really the, 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 you know, the core of OCD. I can't deal with not knowing. So I can't deal with not knowing if the stove is on. I can't deal with not knowing if the sink is on or the, you know, my hands are clean. It's the, I can't deal with not knowing that really is at the root of all of these issues. Mm -hmm. So how does that, okay. So for the, the, the thoughts, um, outside of the thoughts, like the extreme ones, well, that's about bad to say, but outside of a thought, like you know, the one that you mentioned about slamming the dog or if, you know, seeing someone get hurt. Um, are there other, is there layers to those, like to, I guess, thoughts that are still intrusive, but um, like like some other examples that are not as extreme. Are there more than that? Or or would it? Oh, it could be it anything. Be, okay. Yeah, it could be anything. So we know, OC, there are these common subtypes that we see just more frequently than others. Um, but that doesn't mean that other presentations don't exist. So we do see, you know, the contamination OCD. We see the relationship OCD, sexual orientation OCD, um, tons and tons of different things. It's also what's most likely is that someone has a sprinkling of kind of a bunch of different things, right? Because if the problem is doubt and this needing to know and this discomfort and not being able to tolerate that, it's going to come up in a lot of different ways. It will, it will attack whatever the person finds to be the most valuable to them. Right. So, um, so a, a good example is you and I probably sit with uncertainty every day. Right. And, and most of your listeners probably do if they ever got in the car, you know, they sat with the uncertainty that they could have gotten killed in a car accident. You know, that's not something that, you know, 100% when you get in the car, you can have faith and you can have trust and you can take calculated risks, but that's all sitting with uncertainty, right? When you, when there starts to become something that you don't tolerate uncertainty about, like, uh, I, I can't tolerate the fact that I had that thought about stabbing my dog. I can't tolerate that. Uh -uh. 
not okay. That is not okay. I need to know where that came from. Then you have a problem. Like then that becomes potentially what your OCD latches onto. Um, so it's not necessarily events. It's, it's, are you sitting with uncertainty and how are you tolerating that? Yeah. And I feel like, um, those thoughts, you call it ego. Ego dysphonic. Yep. Yes. Those, I feel like people will, are definitely way more hesitant to mention, which is why they're not as talked about or heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know I've had uh, friends who told me like they've had those thoughts, but they wouldn't call it that at all. They'd just be like, that's just crazy. If we're sitting by like on the street somewhere, a car might come by and just yep. smash us, you know, and, like it's been like maybe like five to six friends. So that's just in the pool of it all. Just imagine how many people mm-hmm. do feel that way. So it's really interesting because that's probably just something that no one ever wants to say out loud. Yep. So and then that's as, why, soon as, as soon as someone says it, they're like, oh my gosh, I feel that way too. I thought I was right. the only one, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's wild. You're demonstrating the, the key here, which is that everyone, we've done research to show this, everyone, no matter what your demographic background is, no matter where you're from in the world, no matter what your mental health background is, everyone in the world experiences these intrusive thoughts. What you said, these quote unquote crazy thoughts that just are like, yeah, I don't know where the heck that came from. They can be thoughts like making out with your grandma or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, there's literally no limit to it. Everyone has these thoughts, but only a couple of people, you know, relatively have OCD. So what's the difference? The difference is that those friends, unless they actually do have OCD, those friends for the most part, and, and like me with the knife and my dog, we didn't assume that that thought was significant. We kind of had that interpretation of, oh, that's weird. <laughs> that's weird. I don't know what to make of that. And they kept moving on with their day. They tolerated the uncertainty about that situation. Where OCD turns into its own little cycle is it's not the intrusive thought that's the problem. It's the drawing of significance from that thought that interpreting that thought as somehow being significant. Oh my gosh, what does that mean about me that I just had that thought that that car could ram into us at any moment? Does that mean that I want that to happen? Does that mean that I want that to happen to my friend? I'm such a horrible person. No one else has thoughts like that. I can't, I don't want to think about that thought ever again. I, I, mm-hmm. I need to stop thinking about that. I need to stop thinking about that. And then of course you think about it more. So right. yeah, everyone has these thoughts. It's just a matter of, People with OCD are going to latch onto it a little bit more, draw significance from it, take responsibility for the thought is a big one. They'll judge the thought as being bad and they shouldn't have it anymore. Um, and that creates a lot of problems. And so the compulsions, is that like an attempt to not have those thoughts again or to kind of subside the thoughts or are they just like kind of separate? Some people have more compulsions, some people have more thoughts how do they, I guess, coincide? So when it comes to OCD, we would argue, especially if it's repetitive and it's persistent, I think of it like a telemarketer. Like if a telemarketer keeps calling, it's probably because you you answer every once in a while, right? So, you know, if you are very consistent and not answering, then they probably will give up, right? So 
our job as therapists is to identify, okay, if this person continues to have these repetitive thoughts that are very disturbing to them, what are the ways that they are answering the call? What are the compulsions that they're doing to perpetuate this cycle? And so when, when there's a thought that is pervasive and persistent and disruptive, there's usually always, I've never in since 2008, I've never worked with anybody who we weren't able to identify some way that they were picking up the phone call from OCD. There's always going to be some attempt at, you know, giving yourself self-assurance. There's always going to be maybe some avoidance, right? Um, There's always going to be something. There's going to be something that the person is doing. So um, even if it's as subtle as just avoidance, like, heck no, I'm not, I'm not picking up that knife ever again. I don't want to have that experience ever again. Well, mm-hmm. the more you avoid it, you know, what you're or like, I'm not hanging out with that person ever again, or just kind of avoiding even like, like you said, if it was like a blackout or whatever, um, avoiding like having the conversation or texting that person like, yep. like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Because again, okay. like we talked about earlier, your brain is picking up what you're throwing down. If you're avoiding something, mm-hmm. your brain is like, okay, that must be a threat. That must be a threat. That must be a threat. Your brain is wired to keep you alive. And so if you are acting as though something is threatening, your body is going to protect you from it. Mm-hmm. How does that play into, I know you said relationship OCD, but how does that play into like having partners? Like if you have these certain things that, you know, compulsions or these certain, like if your partner doesn't know that and you know, even if you're living with someone and it's like, it's something that they do that literally just drives you insane or whatever, but they don't know that, like, how does one even, especially in the beginning of the dating phase, um, so I'm getting like a lot of like thoughts right now. I'm like, hold on. It's a lot to unpack. It's a lot to unpack, for sure. Um, So So how does one recognize that? And then of course you can't just diagnose someone. Um, But yeah, just kind of walk me through that and then... Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to the example of relationship OCD, which I think a lot of people can resonate with, um, I think it comes down to just like any other common theme or any other way that OCD would present itself. We have to be okay with not knowing 100%. Like I've been married to my husband for nearly 10 years. I wouldn't bet $3 billion on the fact that he's going to be my, my number one person forever. Like I wouldn't bet my son's life on it. I don't know of anything that I would enough that I would bet my son's life on. You know what I'm saying? So, but, but I live with that. I I love him very much and he's the best and he's super stellar. And I, I have no reason to believe that we won't be together forever, but I also am okay. Not knowing 100% someone with OCD, they're like, no, I need to know 100%. I need to know 100% that this is the right person for me, that I'm with the right person or that this person's not cheating on me or that I didn't do something bad or whatever. Um, so it comes down to you needing to be okay with that. Like, can you be okay? Not knowing a hundred percent. Can you be okay with the little nuances that are natural in relationships that are inherent in relationships? And so if this is resonating with someone and they find themselves like, oh yeah, I ask a lot of questions of my partner. Um, I do like constantly ask if, if, uh, they feel happy in the relationship. I do constantly ask if they love me vice versa or whatever. I do find myself giving into these behaviors as far as this need to know and this urgency thing. Um, 
just take a listen to what we've talked about so far, right? Like truly ask yourself, how has that worked out for you so far? Like, does it resonate with you that you ask these questions, you get the answer, probably feels good for a couple minutes or hours or days, but then you're right back to square one. Right. It's like a cycle. Um, so how does that work? And you can even use your own example, like your own pers personal experience with like the honeymoon phase, because you know, the honeymoon phase, it's like, whatever. And then you start to see the real things, which is, I guess is where the doubt comes in. So with someone, which we all have, but with someone with OCD, like, what does that look like? And of course you're never going to be 100%. So do most people end up single forever or scared forever? Or how does that play out? Well, I think the fallacy that you mentioned, which I think so many other people would have also fallen victim to, is that somehow not being 100% equals... They're not the one. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, that somehow... Uh, so again, it's not... It's not the doubt that's problematic. It's the misinterpretation of that doubt being significant. So it's... There's nothing that we can be 100% certain about. Again, like the fact that you and I are even having this podcast right now, like maybe I'm tripping, maybe like I'm, I'm like in a second world, right? Like who knows a hundred percent, right? Like there's nothing that we can be 100% certain about, um, including, and especially our relationships because that directly involves some other person. And so we have to accept that there's always inherently, especially with relationships going to be some doubt. And the doubt is not the problem. It's, are you willing to, is this something that you need to be 100% sure about, which isn't achievable by the way, or is this something that you can even be 100% sure about? Again, it's not achievable anyway. So it comes down to, can you be happy and can you move forward despite that uncertainty, living a life of value, right? And, you know, not needing to know 100%. And you're so right. The honeymoon phase is a huge like drop off for people. And, and, you know, when it comes to relationship OCD, yeah, we've been together for about a year. We just moved in together. Yeah. And, and now all the doubts are coming in, right? It's not the presence of the doubts that's problematic because that happens to a lot of people. It's the interpretation and the intolerance of the doubts. That's the problem. And as someone who could be on the other side, like that could kind of look like, oh, like the guy was playing the whole time, you know, or it could look like, all these different things. So what would be your advice to someone who's like a partner or someone who cares about a person who might have OCD, that type? Um, what would be a way to even navigate that? The first thing that comes to- Especially if you're not sure, and especially if they're not the one to go and figure right. it out. You so know? I would, my favorite method, um, because you know, it's, it's, it goes against everything that we want to do, right? Like when we have someone in our lives who we care about, whether that's a romantic relationship or my husband or my son, it go, what we want to do is we want to show them we love them and reassure them. And we want them to feel safe and feel cared for. And we want to, you know, take their concerns away. But when you start to witness from your partner that you continue to support them and it works for a little bit, but then you're back at square one and you try again and you try to support them, but you're back at square one and it's not working again, at some point you got to try something different, right? Like you can't expect any, something to change without something changing. And so if it's getting to that point, I would flip the script a little, um, 
yeah, I think walking that fine line, like how do you support your loved one without giving them ritualistic ammo that would make their OCD worse? It's really hard, but just coming back to And there could also be like the flip, like the flip part of the avoidance mm-hmm. part. Cause you can have the person who, you know, the way that they, I guess, relate or the way that it comes out is, you know, asking lots of questions, needing that reassurance, all of that. And then the person who just avoids the whole thing within itself. Yep, absolutely. You know? Like I, I can't, yeah. I, ha- I had a doubt about this person or, you know, I found someone else attractive. So that must mean that this, my boyfriend is not the one for me. So I'm going to break up. And it's like, you know, then you're, yeah, that's in that situation. You probably will be single forever because you're not allowing any space for, for anything to go wrong. Um, so yeah, you're totally right. You could do the exact opposite, which is, yeah, just avoid, like just avoid. I'm not, I don't want to be in relationships because like, you know, no one is meeting 100% of my criteria. No one is meeting, you know, I don't feel 100% about anybody, but you know, what does that even look like? Mm-hmm. So what's the difference between, you know, someone being particular, detailed, super clean, organized, and OCD? Because I feel like sometimes people you throw around like, oh, I'm so OCD. It's like, uh, I don't think so. It's just like, you know, right. it, or they could be. Um, so what is that difference? So it's such a good question. Oh, my gosh. So the difference is people who have OCD, they would want anything but to do the things that they have to do especially I have experienced, like I said, working eight years in the most debilitating cases in the world. I've seen people lose their life to OCD. I've seen people not be able to see their dying parents because of OCD. I've seen people lose jobs, you know, just some really difficult and horrendous health situations because of their OCD. People who have OCD, they do not want to be that way. And that's part of the disorder, right? OCD implies that there's a disorder. So um, disorder meaning, you know, there's distress, there's impairment, and it takes a significant amount of time out of their day. So, you know, it's one thing to say, oh yeah, you know, like I'm really particular. I like doing these things. Like I'm just a really organized person. If that works for you and you feel like that's more of a preference, that's di- that's fine, but that's different from people who have OCD because people who have OCD, they are debilitated by this. They do not want to do this, but they feel like they have to. Like I have to, I have to keep doing this. Otherwise something bad is gonna happen. I have to keep doing this. Otherwise X, Y, Z is gonna happen. Otherwise I'm not gonna be able to tolerate it. And there's really no, you know, like, yeah, I will lose my job before I, leave my house without checking the stove one more time it's just it can get that bad what are some uh responses when a ritual or a compulsion like isn't satisfied in that moment like does like what could that look like with someone would it be them just getting really silent would it be them getting angry you know like what are some of those responses if it if they aren't satisfied with whatever that is and and, that makes sense yeah Mm -hmm. so we yeah, right. And and hopefully I answer correctly. So let me know if I do or if I don't. But um, what we want is for someone to do this anxiety provoking thing and then not give into their ritual, right? So let's say that someone, yeah, let's back to the, you know, relationship OCD example. Let's say that someone, um, you know, I had that, I, I found someone else attractive at the store today. 
again, that's not the problem. We all experience that and we don't necessarily interpret that as being bad or significant or something that we need to take responsibility for. But someone with OCD and particularly relationship OCD might say, well, what does that attraction that I felt towards this random stranger, that must mean something about my relationship. That must mean that I don't actually love my partner as much as I thought that I did. I have to go and confess now. I have to go and tell my boyfriend that. I have to go and make sure that that's normal and then that's okay. Um, so they have that surge of anxiety, like, oh my gosh, like I feel guilty. I feel bad. I feel uncertain. And they want to go and confess it to their partner and, or, you know, type on Google, is it normal to be attractive, tr attracted to other people while you're in a relationship? Both of those things I would say are ritualistic. They're done out of urgency. They're done with the intention of getting rid of the anxiety. Um, and they're not something that's like within your values, right? Like you could say that that's an anxiety-based decision to either confess or to Google online. And so let's say that someone um, chose not to do that. They are knowledgeable now. They do not want to give into those compulsions because they listened to this episode and they learned about ERP. Um, and so they're going to try to resist that. What that looks like then is that they are going to say things like, that's, this is really hard. I'm not figuring that out. I know that that's really anxiety provoking for me right now, but I'm not going to try to figure that out. I am not going to tell my boyfriend about this. I am not going to go and look online. I'm not, I'm not answering that question. So a lot of times when it comes to doing these exposures and doing the treatment, OCD has a way of coming up in the form of questions. Like, what if this person isn't the right one for you? What if this is something that you need to tell your boyfriend? Um, and our job is to not answer those questions. And so it's all about like allowing that discomfort to be there um, and not doing anything to get rid of it. So continuing about your day, you're going to, you know, bring that anxiety with you, bring those uncomfortable sensations with you, but keep going about your day as though you did not have that intrusive thought, because then you're going to give your brain the message, right? You're going to have your brain get the message that, okay, this, this question doesn't need answered. Penny's going about her day just as normal. So I guess things are okay. I guess, I guess this is okay right. now. And it's going to take your mm -hmm. So that like sit there and ruminate yeah, on it. Yeah, absolutely. Because rumination we would say is also a, a more mental compulsion. It's, it's done with the intention of trying to figure something out. And rumination is not, rumination can get nasty, right? Rumination can, can make you feel like you're doing something, but it can just open up the rabbit hole of like a million other possibilities that make for some reason, I feel like that's like more common than people, for some people, actually like addressing or, you know, outwardly talking about it with someone or letting their boyfriend know whatever. I feel like people ruminate more than Oh, anything. yeah. I think we all, and, and we all do, right? Like, you know, we all ruminate. We all, and, and you have to ask yourself, okay, to like, what level of control do I have over this behavior? You know, if I wanted to, you know, control that behavior, could I exert some power over it and, and just be more mindful? You know, am I distressed by this behavior? Is this rumination uh, causing some impairment in my life? Like I'm not able to focus at work. I'm not able to sleep. Uh, then it might become problematic, but, but rumination, I think I, of all of the rituals, I think everyone is probably quote unquote guilty of rumination and avoidance. Like, I don't, I don't know anyone who doesn't avoid scary things and I don't know anyone who doesn't ruminate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
do some people i think i saw this on your page um to not deal with it they just isolate or they just kind of they'll just pick and choose different moments yeah they can, i mean yeah so i i think isolation can be the avoidance right like oh my gosh like it's just so much easier in bed you know, when I don't have to deal with the outside world, OCD wants you to be alone and isolated in your bed, in your room, all by yourself, not engaging in the world around you. That's what OCD and anxiety wants because your brain doesn't care whether you're happy. Your brain doesn't care whether you are, um, content or fulfilling your need, you know, your values, your brain cares about whether you're alive and you know, your brain, if you let it, it will hole you into a, a small little space where you're totally isolated and you are just by yourself. Um, so it comes down to, I, I always say, you know, in order to make OCD and anxiety smaller, you need to make your world bigger. So getting out of your room, it's doing hobbies, it's doing things that you normally, you know, loved to do, even if OCD and anxiety has taken some of that away. Um, so yeah, isolation, is a big one. It's one of those things that can make you feel better in the moment, but can just make you feel so much worse in the long run. Where do you think, is it something, like, where does it come from? Is it like a trauma response? Is it a genetic thing? What have studies shown about that? Like where, what's the root of it? So studies have shown that with a lot of like, like with a lot of mental illnesses uh, or mental health conditions, it's a little bit of both. So um, it's very much a nature and nurture type of situation. So uh, studies have shown that there is a biological kind of predisposition. So um, if you, you know, have OCD or if you have a related condition, chances are that you will pass it along to a direct relative. Um, now that's not to say 100% that's, you know, your child or, you know, your direct relative will absolutely 100% manifest and present with OCD. It's kind of like a loaded trigger or a loaded gun. Um, so they're, they are given this loaded gun and certain things in their life, whether that's modeling from their family, right? Like if they saw their mom constantly washing their hands and, and being fearful of germs, they might you know, internalize that and model that and get that learning and those ideas. Um, it could be a traumatic event. It could be traumatic events. Um, it could be lots of things. It could just be anything from their environment, but it's a loaded gun in that those environmental factors are what can pull the trigger. So, um, we don't say that anything causes OCD. It's more so like what could pull the trigger or what could turn the light switch on, um, mm -hmm. that was already kind of brewing underneath the surface anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So interesting. This is like the most uh, layered, I think, topic for it's me personally. <laughs> I think because it's something that I, um, like if I've experienced it, kind of what we talked about earlier, then I can kind of understand it more. But because I know that I don't think I've experienced that, which is, which is different for me. So that's why I'm just like, wow, this is, this is really good though. It's a I'm lot. So it's much. a lot. Yeah. So it's a lot can, to unpack. You can probably relate to like why I wanted to come on the, I mean, there's so much more yeah. education that we have to do about it because people aren't getting the help that they need and it really is I feel like it could be so easily written off it, mm -hmm. because it just it could look so many different ways and people just like are like no that's not me like I don't think like that or whatever and they don't take that time so it's, yeah it's a lot so I think the world needs like podcasts like yours and yes um like this is how people learn this especially nowadays right like this is how mm -hmm. they hear something like oh my gosh that uh, that was that I thought that was just me 
I thought that that was, I heard something on the podcast the other day, like, oh my gosh. And then they share it with a friend and, you know, it's little by little, but I think that's what it comes down to is just like a reorganization of what it looks like and how it presents itself. And no one talks about these things. No one, no one says like, oh yeah, I have this crazy thought, da da da, because we're worried about what people would think about it. But as soon as I noticed that in my postpartum journey, as soon as I was open in saying that, like, oh yeah, like I, I check to make sure that my son is still alive sometimes in the middle of the night. They're like, me too. Like, where were you? Like the past six months. Like I needed you to tell me that so that I knew that I wasn't alone. Um, so I think it's important. It's hard, but it's important to be open about these struggles and to be more vulnerable because, you know, we never know who's going to say me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's something that's super duper internal, but also we want to be of support to like the people that love us and the people that are around us. So my question is, how did your husband and your friends support you? You know, like, what did that look like? I know it was a journey from what I've been hearing, however much you want to share. I would love to know, like, personally what that was like. Yeah, it was hard. And it was really, I mean, it was heartbreaking, to be honest, is the word that comes to mind. So I had a lot of uh, fears about my son and, and particularly around sleep deprivation. So I, uh, started off having intrusive, like harm thoughts. Like what if I hurt him on accident and I don't remember what if I'm so sleep deprived that like, I'm going, I'm losing my mind. Like that was my fear that I was losing my mind, that I was going psychotic, that I was not able to trust my senses. And so that was kind of how mine came about. Um, so I would literally check my son for hours in the middle of the night to make sure that like, I didn't literally, it sounds wild. It sounds like it doesn't make sense, but that's OCD for you. Sometimes I needed to make sure that I didn't like punch his head through the wall. Um, and I was just like meticulously, like I needed to use all my senses. I needed to see every inch of his body. I needed to feel every inch of his body. I needed to feel my hands to make sure that there wasn't blood on my hands. And as soon as I would be sure enough to put him down and go back to bed, I would have that thought, like, are you that sleep deprived that you missed something? And I would have to go back and I would have to do it again. And that got so bad. I remember it was, I I hadn't slept for like the entire night. And I asked my husband, it broke my heart to have to ask him to do it because I know that that's not what you should do. Um, But again, like I now have OCD, right? So I'm feeling it in a totally different way. Um, I asked my husband to get up and check my son for me um, because I didn't trust myself. And um, that's a huge ritual, right? Like having someone do it for you, right? Like that's not okay. That's a big no-no. And what we, in the treatment that we do, it's called an accommodation. Um, And so, yeah, it got really bad. And there are lots of other ways it came out too, but um, yeah, it broke my heart in hindsight. Like I still remember that, like I must've been struggling so bad to know how bad of a ritual that was and like how debilitating that could be to the trajectory of my own recovery to still wake him up and to still ask him that. Um, And he's a therapist too. So he knows Yeah. He's a therapist too. So he knows, he knew that he shouldn't do that. He knew that he shouldn't, you know, get up and check my son for me, but I'm sure he was so heartbroken for me too. Like in that hard place of like, I love you so much. I want to help you. Um, yeah. And so he did. 
but that I woke up the next morning and I think that's when I was like, okay, this is just too much. Like I, mm-hmm. I can't, I can't do this mm-hmm. anymore. Very interesting. Well, that was really, really good. Thank you so much. I learned so I have so many more questions, but of course we can't talk for hours. Um, so thank you. Yeah, definitely back. you have to come back <laughs> so we can break it down even more and even talk about how it affects people of color and just like all those different things. I have no, I have so many yes. notes on so that. We'll, yeah, we'll do I that. We'll do like a part two. Um, we'll let everyone digest this first. Um, so thank you so much. That was amazing. We always end with our guests letting us know like what brings them peace of mind. It could be anything. It could be the most random little thing. Um, so just let us know like what's bringing you peace of mind. Something that brings me peace of mind is I think the modernization of therapy. So, you know, these things are so much more easily accessible to people on things like podcasts, um, Instagram, social media is a great place to get access to treatment or to get education about treatment where people years ago, they didn't have that. They didn't have podcasts. They didn't have all the education that's at their fingertips. And I think the modernization of therapy too, like virtual therapy, being able to do sessions face-to-face or, uh, you know, online versus face-to-face, um, where I work, no CD, we have a free app that people can download. It's totally free. Um, it's just treat my OCD on the app store. So we have tons of free webinars. Um, I do a lot of them too. If you liked what I had to say, we have an in-app community of people who get it. It's like, it's like our own little social media forum, like in our app. Uh, and it's just really great. So I, I think, you know, I wonder if my son will ever struggle with OCD and anxiety, given what I've struggled with, but I feel better knowing that he has so many more resources than he would have had like 20 years ago. So that gives me peace of mind. Right. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. If there's nothing else, um, definitely share your pages, social media, website, all those things. If there's anything else you feel on your heart to say, you can also say that as well. Awesome. Yeah. So you can find me. uh, I live on Instagram pretty much. So I'm over at jenna.overbaugh on Instagram. Um, I have a podcast too. So if you're into learning more about OCD and exposure and response prevention, want to just hear more about it, um, that's called All the Hard Things. And then, yeah, download our app. You can find me. I get on there and I try to respond to people every once in a while. Um, Maybe you'll see me on a webinar or something. But um, yeah, lots of great resources for you. And yeah, hopefully we can do part two.